Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. Hello, and welcome to Women's Mentoring Network of Canada. Today, you have a guest host, Carla Harding. After much popular demand for having Amanda Calhouse here, uh, we've now are going to present a very special episode. So Amanda has asked myself and the aid of her two daughters, Emma and Julia, to be the guest hosts today. Hello, Amanda, and welcome to you to your very own podcast. How are you doing? Hey, Carla. Thank you very much. I'm I'm doing well, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm excited to be on the receiving end of uh, of the interview. Most excellent. All right, because your viewers know a little bit about you, we are going to deviate from your notes somewhat, and I am going to be ably assisted by Emma and Julia as we go through this. So what we're going to do is we're going to get down to business and start with the questions. So Emma, over to you to start off with our first question. Okay, so the first question is, what prompted you to go to military college, and how did your path differ from where you expected it to go? So... What really prompted me to go to military college um, was a couple of things. I would say that the primary thing was a desire to be a pilot. Um, I I started looking into uh, into the military around grade eleven. Um, RMC had come to my high school to do as part of their career fairs or university fairs, um, and that was sort of my first introduction. And I thought. What a what a great opportunity, right? You can go to university that the education is paid for. You have a guaranteed job afterwards, and I could fly planes. Like, what could be better than that? Now, how did my path differ? Well, I found out that I had myopic error in my left eye, which means <laughs> that I was nearsighted <laughs> on my in my left eye. I didn't wear glasses. Didn't in fact didn't start wearing glasses until I was in my 40s. Um, But that was enough to prevent me from being a pilot. But by that point, I'd already researched RMC, found out about the programs that they offered and was hooked. And so um, that that's how I ended up getting into RMC. But uh, okay, so so you joined for because the occupation, not so much the educational aspect. Well, the education, I think, is what convinced me to pursue it once I didn't make pilot. So that's sort of what kept me going towards that path was the the educational opportunity. Um, I was going to have to pay for university myself. There there was no RESP when uh, when we were growing up. <laughs> I'm sure as many many of the listeners know. Um, and so um, my I, I did have a backup plan. I was going to go to the University of Waterloo, um, but uh, I had a, a large uh, a large loan looming. <laughs> to, to go to Waterloo. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a really fascinating one. Cause I know you and I had spoken about the attractiveness of the scholarship and what a difference it really does make. And it's, it's interesting that, um, you went for pilots. So then what was the driving factor? Was it the type of degree you wanted or was like, how did you come to your second choice? 
so when RMC called with the offer, it was as a communications and electronics engineer. And I had already decided I wanted to do engineering. So it wasn't a far stretch for, for me to become a Sealy officer. And it was still in the Air Force. So um, all of my, you know, all of my choices had stayed Air Force at that point. So uh, even though it wasn't, it, I think I'm pretty sure Sealy was my last choice, but um, <laughs> uh, it ended up being the, the best thing in the end because I, I learned things that I was then able to apply, you know, when I left the military. So. So it's really interesting about the engineering. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Emma for our next question because I want to pull on this thread. Emma, back to you. Okay, so the next question is, why did you decide to be an engineer? Well, for that, I have to thank um, my high school teachers. So I had a chemistry teacher in grade 11, Mr. Stratton, and a physics teacher in grade 13, Mr. Mr. Carswell. And those, Mr. Stratton was the first one who had suggested to me that, um, that I should consider engineering as a career option. I, I was really good in math. I enjoyed math. Um, and I liked science. I liked, I enjoyed chemistry at that point. He was my, my chemistry teacher. Um, and I said, well, I don't know what engineers do. I actually, in all honesty, thought they drove trains because in, in my family, that's what engineers did. They, right. they were train drivers um, back, in, back in Ireland. And so I said, well, what do engineers do? Because I didn't think that's what he meant. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave me, I think, what has been the best description of engineering I've ever had, which was anything that it doesn't exist, exist naturally in the world is because of engineering. And, and that's the definition oh. he used. So, you know, when something has to be created, you know, that, that's, you know, that is what engineers do. They create things that didn't exist before. Oh my God. That actually sounds like that needs to be like the number one pitch for every engineering school ever, because <laughs> how, how do you not want to be an inventor after you get a, uh, get a quote like that? Yeah. So you went into electrical engineering, right? Yeah. And that was because of that physics professor. He had, um, he had, for my OAC project, I created a potentiometer and uh, it was basically, it, it, it's an engineering electric. It's basically something you learn in electrical engineering. Um, and I was just fascinated by it. And so when it came to third year, when we were choosing between electrical and chemical, I was like, whatever mark I get between chemistry and, um, uh, you know, the electromag portion of physics, whichever one has the higher mark, that's what I'll do. I got the exact same mark in both. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so as a CLE officer, I was like, well, communication electronics engineer, I'll try electrical. If I don't like it, I'll switch to chemical. And I liked it. So I stayed. I, I got to tell you, I, I really admire how, like, what you make sounds so very simple. I don't know about your daughters, but I'm sitting there going, as with my arts degree, going, all of that sounds really complicated. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're, we're going to come back to your, your quest and your thirst for um, being an inventor and innovation a little bit later in the podcast. But we're going to go back and learn a little bit more about Amanda as a child. So, uh, Emma, back to you for the next question. Oh, correction, it's Julia for the next question. What many do not know about you is that you're an immigrant. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, I was born in Northern Ireland, just outside of Belfast. Uh, and 
we emigrated first to South Africa, actually, before we came to Canada. So when I was about five years old, my parents packed up my sister and I, sold off the house and I think all of all of our worldly belongings, if you will. And, uh, and we, uh, we flew on a, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was my first flight. I, I don't really remember the flight. My mom tells me there was a big thunderstorm during it, but I don't remember it. <laughs> and, uh, and we got to Johannesburg, South Africa in 1977. Wow. And I, I have very, very vague recollections of it. I remember a big red staircase and I remember being fed cold beans for breakfast. And I just remember not liking that. <laughs> but my mom has continued to tell a story, which is really the reason we didn't stay in South Africa. And that's because the waiter who served us every day could speak seven languages. So Swahili was the, the primary language in, in okay. South Africa, but he could speak English, no problem, but he could also speak five other languages. And she said, and his shoes didn't fit him. And for her to bring her her kids over and her, you know, for our family to be raised in a country where someone who had that capability wasn't able to get shoes that fit was not like it was like being out of the frying pan and into the fire coming from the troubles in Northern Ireland to apartheid in South Africa. And so we actually only stayed 10 days and they, they turned it into a vacation and we, we left after 10 days and went back to Northern Ireland uh, for two more years. My brother was born and then before he turned two, we emigrated to Canada. And so we so got here in 1980. Yeah, so I got to tell you, Matt, and it's a really interesting one, especially when you consider that you were born in the era of the IRA. And you and I spoke a little bit about how that uh, affected your parents' decision to come to Canada. But what I'm very curious is, did this skew your vision of the military or just your vision of how you saw people? Um. I think what it really did is skewed my vision of religion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because I, I think probably, and, and it was actually one of my first leaders when I was in, um, when I was in, posted in Halifax to one of the comm squadrons. Um, it came around the 12th of July, which is a big celebration in Northern Ireland. Um, it's been going on for over 300 years. They celebrate this Battle of the Boyne um, that happened in 1690. And, you know, to me, it, you know, growing up as a kid, the Battle of the Boyne was just, you know, it was the Orange Parade and there were marching yep. bands and, and singing and, and, and people celebrating. That's what it meant to me. And I said, I, you know, I, I remember talking to um, uh, Major Champagne at the time, and he said, um, he's, and I said, I, c I can't understand all the violence that erupts every year. Like, this is not meant, like, it's not a protest or a demonstration. I, I didn't see it that way. I was a naive young 20-year-old. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, how would you feel if, you know, 300 years ago, something happened to your ancestors, and every year you were reminded how they failed. <laughs> and I right. thought, oh my God, that would be awful. And it just put it into perspective for me from a, from a different point of view. And I think, you know, for me, that's, that's sort of how, how things have started to shape my life since then is, you know, 
everything that we experience, we experience from our own perspective. But when we start to look at it from the other person's perspective, we get a, we have a much, you know, we just, we're, we're able to, to be empathetic, right? And we're able to understand, you know, what, what we have in common versus, you know, focusing on the difference. And I think, you know, those are the sorts of things that, that, you know, growing up in that, <clears throat> growing up in that time in Northern Ireland, I, I didn't understand, but, but have since learned from. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, experience when you think of what you are as a child. And we don't, I don't think we hoist aboard the life lessons we gain in even those formative years. And I know in the discussions that you and I had had about it is I think that you, you had an early, very early in your life, uh, see diversity as a race versus a color or gender thing. Can you pull on that a bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, talking about the that experience of my parents emigrating to South Africa, and, and they felt so strongly that this was not um, not apartheid was not an environment they wanted to raise their children in. And I think having parents that felt so strongly that, um, that we were equals, that, that the races were equals, I think certainly, you know, was very informative on, on me as a child. And so when I grew up in Scarborough in, uh, you know, a suburb of Toronto, and our high school was um, very ethnically diverse, um, meaning that the the white children were about ten percent of the population. It didn't. Right. It it wasn't really something that I ever thought about until much later. Like I I didn't you know I didn't go to high school thinking oh I'm I'm a minority. I I went to high school thinking that I like this person, we get along, it doesn't matter what, what race, what religion, what gender they are, I, I like this person, and, and it's the way they think and the way we talk and, and those sorts of things that is what tended to attract me to different people. Um, and not, you know, not so much who are, you know, what our background was. And it actually wasn't until I got to RMC where I, I really started oh, to understand <laughs> a lack of diversity <laughs> for the first time. So I, I, that was a little bit of culture shock for me um, showing up at RMC. Not, And it wasn't even so much, I don't think I was too shocked that there weren't many women there. Um, I was more shocked that it was so Caucasian. Right. I just, I just, that's not how I had grown up up until this point. And that really, um, yeah, just, it was, it was eye opening. <laughs> well, it, it's, an, and it's an interesting point because when you sit there and you try and see yourself in the organization that you're in, I think this is one of the things why this is such an important question. I think why the, the reason you started the podcast is such an important question is you have to be able to envision that you could be that person one day. And if there's nobody that looks or acts like you, you really are challenged. Um, because we're going to touch on a couple more of these topics, but I, I want to get through your time from as you're um, in the late 90s. So I'm going to go back to, our, uh, to Julia for our next question. Your choices for leaving the military and your decisions in the late 1990s and early 2000s were very much shaped by those also being made by your husband, Tom, a.k.a. my dad, because 
He is so much a part of your story. We want to hear about him. Let's start off with how you met. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> Tom and I met uh, at a soccer game. Uh, for those who know either of us, that's probably not much of a surprise. Uh, I started playing soccer at RMC in third year when the, the team was um, created. And uh, when I was in Halifax, I was posted in Halifax uh, in the late 90s at the comm squadron. And Tom was playing uh, soccer with the base team. He had also just recently, I think the year before, come back from playing at the World Military Games. So he was a, he oh, was wow. a pretty good soccer player. He played SISM uh, during his time in the military. And so the base team was playing against Gagetown in the regional finals, and I had gone to watch. And after the game, uh, John Schwitt and I, good friends from RMC, had uh, we were we were chatting and. Low, I, I, unbeknownst to me, uh, Tom and John had been best friends at Royal Roads. And uh, that's where Tom studied um, for, for his education. He had gone to, to Rhodes for all four years. So we actually hadn't met. In fact, we met that day after the soccer game. And we hit it off. <laughs> so when, when did you guys, were you guys both in the military when you got married? No. Uh, we were both in the military. We're, yeah, we were both in the military when we got engaged. Um, we got engaged in um, September of 98. Uh, but we, um, I got out in May of 99. That was the end of my short, uh, sorry, the end of my mandatory service. Uh, and I got out to go back to school full time at Dalhousie to do my master's degree. Uh, and Tom was finishing his short service engagement because in that summer of 98, he had decided uh, to remuster. He had, he had been Zulu on, um, out of the Mari training. He did not enjoy engineering like I did. And, uh, <clears throat> but, but he was given the opportunity. Don't be so judgy, by the way. Us artsmen, he'd love to. Oh, <laughs> no, I just, I'm like, engineering is not for everyone. And, and, you know, Tom, Tom will, yeah. would definitely agree with that. And, uh, although he, he enjoys that kind of thing now, he did not then. And, uh, and so he was given the opportunity to remuster into logistics. And so that fall he was, um, or that summer he was, he was going to do his logistics training in Borden. Yeah, because part of where I was always very curious about this is because as you're making the decision to leave the military is because I know I had asked you whether or not you were ever a married service couple and your reaction was absolutely not. And I, and because I think I would think your reaction in and of itself is a really important reaction because uh, let me tell you, 1990s, not, it's a very big challenge space. Can you talk a bit about why you had the reaction you did when I asked you that question? Yeah, so, um, you know, as a CELI officer, I had some, um, some of my staff who had had to deploy. And, you know, having to deploy when you had a family and, you know, in this case, it was a, a single parent, but the same could be said. It, it was equivalent if you were a married service couple. You know, what what are the options for your children? And so knowing that my family was based in Toronto and Tom's family was based on Vancouver Island and we were living in Halifax and he was in the Navy, <laughs> you know, right. that, that limits the options of where we're going to get posted to Halifax, Esquimalt, and Ottawa. <laughs> and so, 
you know, that, that really doesn't give us much options for, and, and he was really, he was East Coast Navy. So it was really Halifax and Ottawa were the, really the options. So we had no family support there. And so the option of, you know, both of us staying in and, you know, having him deploy or, you know, having to, to do different things and having children to take care of on top of that, um, just didn't seem for me, it was it was not something that that was going to fit with what we were looking to do. And so, when you got so you left in 1999, and then you guys got married a year later. How were how are you balancing your life decisions at this point in time between education, needing to look for a job eventual, and family? So, I think from. From a family perspective, I was um, I was putting off as far as possible having children. <laughs> I was like, first, well, first, first, I wanted to get married, <laughs> and then we could talk about having children, but not right away. And so that was sort of, um, I'll say, that was a decision that Tom and I came to together. So um, up until. Up until Tom and I met, I had no, no intention of having children. I was very career-minded and focused sort of on on me and 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 my profession. And when when Tom and I met, um, he, you know, I I would say even you know early, maybe even on our our first or second date, you know, was very upfront. You know, I do want to have children, and so if you don't want to have children, this, you know, this isn't going, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and so I, I was sort of like, oh, and I remember, I, I, I remember calling uh, my best friend at the time and being like, oh my God, like, I think I actually need to think about this. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's very interesting because if you think about it, it sort of became the era that we are all in at that point in time. We are being we had been raised coached that you had to make a choice. If you wanted the professional stream, then you were going to come off that professional stream to have children. Um, it wasn't a case that you could, you could try and have it all. And so I, I'm just very fascinated about, um, because you're a huge planner. Did you sequentially <laughs> plan it out? Or yeah. what of, was some of, course, of the decisions? Of course, of course I did, you Carla. Did. <laughs> Of course I did. I'm, I'm, you know, some of the guests we've had on the show, you know, talk about, you know, how they just go from one thing to the next. And I, I'm, I'm jealous, like honestly jealous because I, I cannot get my brain to stop. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I must know what is happening next. I must be part of, and I think I'm, as I get older, I think I'm getting better about it, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big planner. And so, you know, what I did you know, in terms of, you know, back to your question of education versus, you know, versus getting a job versus the kids, um, I, I took it sequentially. And I said, I, I started off doing education part time while I was still in the forces um, and went back to school at Dalhousie part time, really didn't enjoy because I, I didn't feel like I was I was doing my best in either function. You know, I, I really wanted to devote all of my time to one or the other. And so that ultimately is why I got out because I wanted to go back to school full time. And I had gotten shortlisted in 98 
I was shortlisted for the master's program through the military that was sponsored by um, whatever the director of space was called back then. Um, and so I got shortlisted as a lieutenant, which was fantastic. But then in the, so maybe it was 97, but uh, the following year, the only one offering the, uh, the program was RMC. And so I would have had to do my master's back at RMC. And I really wanted to go back for master's to get more of that diversity of thought. And I wanted to go to a different university. It didn't have to be Dalhousie. It just had to be somewhere other than RMC. And so that in the end is, is why I, I got out. I decided, no, this is the time to do it. It was 1999. I was worried about Y2K and getting you know pulled off if I took a leave without pay. I was worried about getting pulled back in. And ultimately, that's that's what what led to that final decision of, of me leaving. Um, I'm glad I did it. You know, the very next year, one of my colleagues at the comm squadron started at Dalhousie with a sponsorship from D space, <laughs> you know, so if I'd been patient, <laughs> you know, my story may have been different. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't have any regrets because it was the right decision at that time for me. And then from there, you had a couple of years of a bit of a grand adventuring. Do you want to tell uh, tell the crew about that? Tell your listeners about your 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 world tours. Yeah, so so I finished my master's. Uh, Tom and I got married in the summer of two thousand. I finished my master's that um, part. I actually finished my my project that time. Uh, in the fall part-time, but started working at Lytton Systems uh, in Enfield as a civilian, working on some Aurora contracts. And uh, I did that for about eight months, and Tom was coming up on the end of his short service engagement in uh, May of 2001. And our plan had been for, like I said, planners all the way. Plan had been for Tom to get out and for us to move to Toronto so that Tom could learn a uh, trade from my dad. So they fixed commercial kitchen equipment and Tom was um, was going to work for my dad. They had, um, they had hit it off the summer Tom was in Borden doing his logistics training. And uh, there were a couple of weekends where, where Tom was like, do you mind if I stay here in Toronto with your dad instead of coming back to Halifax? And I'm like, that's fine. And, uh, and so he would go out on calls with my dad and, and he just, you know, it really, for him, it was, you know, doing finance and, and logistics was, did not, you know, get him up in the morning, the way going to fix something did. And so, you know, it made him happy, which, which made me happy. And so, we, we moved to Toronto that June of 2001, packed up all our stuff into storage, and uh, we set off around the world for 10 weeks. And we went, to, we went to Greece, we went to the Czech Republic, which is where Tom's family, extended family live. We went to uh, Japan, and then over to Australia for three weeks, and then to New Zealand for for two weeks and then a short, short stop on Vancouver Island to visit his, his immediate family um, on our way back to Toronto. And we landed back here on September 2nd, 2001, which was nine days before 9-11. And so the plan was, hey, we'll have this great brand adventure and then I'll get a job and then we'll start having kids. And, uh, and no job came after September 11th. <laughs> Um, it was, uh, eight months, uh, in eight months, I think I had three interviews and, 
you know, is a, a little bit disheartening for sure. Um, you know, as a 29 year old moving back into my parents' basement <laughs> was also a little disheartening, uh, especially as I, like I'd left home at 17 with no intention of ever returning. <laughs> and here you are married masters and back with mom and dad. Exactly. <laughs> now, at least your mom and dad are pretty fabulous. They're, they're pretty good people. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Luckily, I, I did find myself um, a contract position um, working with Purelater and, uh, and did that for a couple of years um, before actually, you know, deciding it was, it was time and we were ready to, to have kids. So that's a really good, uh, good segue. I'm going to pass it back to our interviewers. Uh, so Emma, next question for you, please. Okay, so you were faced with a number of challenges after you decided to leave the military. Do you think that your confidence and resilience came came about from your time at military college, or were you always like that? <laughs> so um, anyone who knew me in high school would, would have been shocked at the person that I was by the time I graduated from RMC. And in fact, many of them were, because a, a few of my friends came to my graduation. And in high school, I worked in the library, and that was very fitting of, of the person that I was as, you know, a 14 to 17-year-old. I was quiet. I was shy. I didn't really speak up unless someone asked me a question directly. By the time I graduated from RMC, I was... Um, I, I just had so much more confidence, and... I think I had always, um, I think I'd always had these, I, I call them rebel tendencies because of the Gretchen Rubin um, book that I read, The Four Tendencies. You know, it's, it's this idea of, you know, you can't tell me what to do, but neither can I. <laughs> and so, so I, I, you know, oh, people were shocked when I wanted to go to RMC in the first place. And, you know, that sort of motivated me a little bit that, you know, people didn't think I could do it. I wasn't sure I could do it either, but I wasn't about to let anybody else prove me wrong. <laughs> and so I think I, I think I proved to myself that I could do hard things. And, you know, that combination of gaining self-confidence and resilience, I think, just set me up for the rest of my life. Well, and you've taken a number of stretch opportunities. Like you, you have not done a single job. You've taken, you've branched out and you've, you've taken that one step forward into the unknown many, many times. Why do you think you are able to do that? So I, I used to think that it was, you know, really the setup of the military that, that helped with that, you know, when we were in the military, you know, every, you know, every summer you'd go somewhere different. Every couple of years you'd get a new posting. And I really liked that. I, that was one thing about the military. One of the reasons I actually thought I would stay in for much longer than I did is because I love that variety. But if I look a little deeper, I think it has way more to do with the fact that I'm an immigrant <laughs> and the son of people and the son, the, the daughter, <laughs> that, that I'm the daughter of people who were willing to pick up and move countries for their family. And I think I have a little bit, I think I have a lot of that in me where I'm just, 
it's not that I'm not afraid. I, I guess it, it, it's, it's the, the courageous part, right? I, it's not that I'm not afraid. I just, I, I have some confidence and, and some courage that things will work out the way they're meant to work out. And I like change. I, I really do like change. And I think, you know, the, you know, when, when you're born of a family that, that likes to move around, you know, we, we lived probably, I went to three different public schools before grade six. I, you know, we only moved a couple of times between um, junior and high school, but even still, you know, we still moved a couple of times. And I think just growing up, knowing that you could, you could go into new situations and no, it wouldn't be fun to start over, but you could do it. I think that that has allowed me to take some of these leaps uh, in my career. Well, I want to scratch on the courage part a little bit with you because you had just finished the job at Perlater and about this point in time, now you're starting to get down to the business of motherhood. Um, Tell us a little bit about where you were in career-wise when you had Emma. So when I had Emma, (laughs) we were, uh, I was actually laid off. (laughs) I I had got, so uh, I'll say long story short, I had gotten laid off from here later in, you know, sort of a a month into us having decided that we were ready to to start having kids and, and we weren't pregnant yet. And so we sort of, you know, had a discussion. We're like, okay, well, we'll give it, we'll give it a, a little bit longer. And, um, you know, I think right now we're in a financial position. We believe we can, we can make do with what we've got. So let, let's go for it. And fortunately it, it was, you know, um, we, we were lucky with, with being able to conceive and, and Emma was, um, Emma was born in uh, 2004, and I was called back in when I was four months pregnant, uh, back onto the contract that I had that I had left, and uh, so I was able to work up until. Um, well, actually, I was only able to work until I was 29 29 weeks pregnant with her because I, I uh, she caused me some uh, some physical uh, problems. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pregnancy-induced hypertension, not fun. Um, and so I, I was laid up at home for a few weeks working um, from home. And then at about 32 weeks, I had to give up my contract um, and go on bed rest. But the, the, the positive thing about it, you know, planners, we had planned, we were, you know, financially in a position to be able to not have me working for that time. And we had put away money for for sort of the the maternity leave, if you would, um, so that if I wanted to stay off for a year, we could afford to do that. And when Emma was about six months old, um, I was ready to go back to work. (laughs) And so I started interviewing for jobs. And I'd been working at uh, on contract uh, for Pure Later, but was in Mississauga. It was quite the commute. We were living in Ajax uh, back then, uh, as we still do. And uh, I would always, you know, driving east, I'd always drive past the GM building and be like, "I'd, I'd, I'd like to work there. It's only 15 minutes from home." And uh, but I don't even know if they do engineering in Canada. And so um, I started to look into it. I had a friend who uh, who was working at the truck plant, and he connected me with. A, a recruiter that 
um, did contract uh, jobs with GM. And uh, when Emma was 11 months old, I uh, I started uh, at GM and honestly haven't looked back since. And that was uh, 15 and a half years ago. Right. Great point. Um, who, over to Julia for my next question. When you went back to work after the birth of your first child, what was it like? Were you well supported? How did you feel as a new mother? How did it, how did you make the decision to have another child? Also known as the fabulous Julia. Of course. <laughs> Second child is always the best, just saying. Ooh, I don't know about that. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a second child supporter. Mm, no. Gotta the first one for sure. No. Right, Bobby? I, I, uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in terms of support when I did go back to work, I... Um, so the the environment that I went into was, um, as you might expect in an automotive environment, uh, was uh, fairly fairly male dominated. I, I think that just for me, I'd always just seen that as you know, I chose engineering as a career, and so that was just what was going to be my future was uh, male dominated environments because engineering as on its own is that way. So that that part wasn't surprising to me at all. I was pleasantly surprised there were. Um, there were several women that I did get to work with when I when I joined GM, and um, while not um, when I joined, but a couple of years prior to that, even the executive director of the center had been a woman. So um, that as a company, there was um, there were a lot more women in in leadership than what I had seen in other places that I'd worked. So that was that was inspiring. Um, in terms of support, I I. It wasn't something that I I went looking for or noticed one way or the other. I think there were some there were peers that supported me, but um, someone coming in with ten years work experience into into the company at that time, uh, GM had been doing engineering in Canada at that scale for only about five or six years. So there wasn't a ton of women that were senior in age to me in, in the building. And so I had one colleague who had, um, who has daughters that are a few years older than mine. And, um, another that, you know, had a son and a daughter, a few, few years older. So there were a few, but it was more, um, peers rather than, than leaders that, uh, that I was, um, you know, that I could get advice and support from. No, and that's interesting because you you worked there for a couple of years and now you're really, you're now getting your second career up and running. And then comes the decision, child number two or no child number two. Yeah, and so for for us, the decision to, to have a second child, I think we had, We'd sort of, I'd say, committed or planned to that. Like if if if, <laughs> if the universe was going to allow it to happen, that that was our plan. And so, really, it came down to a matter of timing. And knowing that there is no perfect timing, we sort of went more for the what what works best for our family. Um, Emma was a very, I think the word is precocious, eighteen month old. <laughs> and so, at eighteen months, we looked at each other and we're like no way. <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, as we got closer to where it would be a three-year gap, we're like, okay, this is, if we wait too much longer, we'll, 
will be completely like she was toilet trained at two. So we'd be completely out of diapers, you know, and, and then having to go back to it. So that's part of the decision making too, more on the family side than on the career side. The way I looked at it, I'd already restarted my career for a third time. <laughs> I had, you know, I'd done the military, I'd gotten out, I'd gone back to school, got a job, left that job, gone back, moved to another city, got a job, only did that for, for, you know, less than two years and then was really starting a career I felt at GM. And so it, it was sort of now or never. Well, so let's talk about GM because we know that you are a very famous person at GM. I'm going to go back to my interviewers for question number eight. So as a holder of 25 patents, innovation is clearly a part of who you are. Have you always been like this? Your listeners want to know. <laughs> so, so I think it's really important for people to understand that, no, I have not always been like this. In fact, that decision to go back to school to get a master's, I very honestly believed that I could not come up with an idea that was creative enough to do a master's of applied science and, and create a thesis project. So our listeners may be very surprised knowing that I have that many patents that I actually have not always been a creative person and I don't consider myself as such. So I really, um, I really want people to take away from this that you can learn to be innovative. And that's actually exactly what happened to me. Uh, I was in a role that allowed me to work on new technology and new ideas and things that didn't exist yet. And I had other people who had inventions and had in invented things before. And when we were discussing things, they, they would say, hey, you know, I think there's some novelty in what you're doing. And I learned that capability, you know, through working with others. And so what I really would want people to take away is this is something that you too can learn. And one of the biggest things that I've, I've been able to do is take two different ideas that maybe um, have nothing to do with each other and bring them together into a new and innovative concept. And, and that's where many of my patents have come from. So now that we're on to the talk of innovation, let's talk about what we've all been waiting for, the podcast question. To my interviewers, Julia, over to you, please. So what led you to do this podcast? Why a podcast? And what gap did you see? So I had been listening to podcasts uh, as a way of as a way of feeling that my time was productive when I was commuting to work. I've been working in Markham for a couple of years. And uh, uh, so my commute was slightly longer than the, the 20 minutes to Oshawa. And these podcasts that I've been listening to were great. Some of them were, you know, sort of life skills, how to be happier, you know, things about cultivating a good life. Um, and I had I'd done some searching on, you know, women women in leadership and looking for sort of podcasts around that. And um, they're from time to time or some episodes um, from the Lean In podcast uh, and from HBR's Women at Work. But those were really the only ones that I had seen. And so that's really where sort of I started thinking, I wonder if there's if there's a gap here and something, you know, an opportunity in podcasting. But I wasn't really of the mind that 
like, what could I share? Right. I was sort of like, mm, I, I have this idea, but I feel like I need, I need to find somebody else to help me, you know, pursue that further. And I met Kate Armstrong in the fall of 2019, after she had launched her book on the Stone Frigate, the first female cadet at RMC. And when I met Kate that fall, I approached her with the idea of the podcast, thinking that um, perhaps um, she might be able to help me set this up. And, and in fact, that's really, really what happened, where um, Kate helped me to, to set up the podcast and the idea around you know focusing on women who attended military college because we all have this common foundation um, in leadership. And even though we don't necessarily all pursue you know, the, uh, the titans of industry roles, as we call them. Um, there are things that, that we've all learned from this same foundation at military college that we can share amongst each other and, and provide that mentoring to others that, that maybe we didn't get as we were going through our time. I think you're being a bit generous in that one. So when you decided to start off with this one, were you always wanting to do mentoring instead of leadership? Like what, what led you to go down this route? Because you could have just as easily done a leadership podcast only. What, what led you to focus on the mentoring piece? I think the, uh, the thing that led me to the, the mentoring piece is really, I, I have been uh, a mentor in a few different fashions over the years, but in 2008, I was, um, I was asked to be a mentor for a program called EcoCar, which is um, an alternative fuels program for the Department of Energy that GM sponsors. And I mentored a university team in that challenge and got to interact with students, uh, engineering students, but also um, some other students as well that were part of this challenge. And I did that for six years. And that that notion of being able to, you know, learn, provide, you know, provide some input to others, but also what you get back when you're mentoring, I feel it's not just a one way, it's not just a one way street, it, it's a two way um, interaction. And I have always, um, you know, that that's been one of the things that I have really enjoyed in you know, in some of the extracurricular, I'll call it things that I've done at GM. And, you know, so being able to expand that further, um, and outside of, of just my, you know, my, my day-to-day interactions. And I think reconnect with, um, with people that have gone through something similar, uh, in their life is, is really where the mentoring piece came from. Well, and I think one of the amazing things about what you've done with uh, with this innovation and this project is that you've also enabled a number of us to reconnect. And as you and I had spoken about it several times, is I don't think we realized how much we needed each other because there was such a major gap in our lives. And the military college experience is so unique that we're the really the only ones that truly understand what what we actually went through and what we can, how we can use those tools as we move forward. So is this your goal as part of this network is for military women to connect with military women, or is it about trying to expand it into civilian life? So it's, it's funny that you say that because I think 
one of the other things that became apparent to me a couple of years ago is um, I was on a leadership team that actually had uh, three other women on it um, for the first time. And so there were, there were a group of 10 of us leaders and four of us were women. And it was, uh, it was such an interesting experience to be able to have um, peers in leadership and I have, I love that experience so much of feeling supported and not that I've not been supported by men along my career because I actually have, but it was just a very different experience. Um, and it really got me thinking, how come I never felt this with my military colleagues? And, um, and I think it's just that we weren't that wasn't encouraged back then. It seems like now it is more, but to your point, you know, part of part of my reason for starting this, you know, with the the ex-cadets was because this was a known group of women that that I could, you know, pull together. Um, I've always thought that in the future I would like to expand it. And and one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I don't know if people recognize it or not, is alternate between people who stayed in the military and people who left the military in the stories that I do tell. Um, but part of that, you, you know, just comes down to who's willing to talk <laughs> and to share their story. And I hope others will. Um, I really, it, it really isn't meant to be strictly about the military, um, because really my perspective is as a civilian leader. <laughs> right. But it's, it's like you said, as we've all had many different successes along the way, and sadly, we, we didn't know that they were successes. We didn't know that we needed to call them successes. And I think if you look back on where, where your career has taken you, there's the obvious successes, which is more recent, but what, from your perspective, are some of those things that you'd classify as achievements that only now looking backwards, do you realize that they are achievements? So I would say that, um, I would say the, the number one achievement um, for me has been being able to do um, both a professional career and motherhood. <laughs> I, uh, I think, I, I think that's got to top my list because I feel personally fulfilled being able to do both. And I think if I hadn't, if I had had to choose one or the other, I wouldn't have known any different if I never had children, right? I wouldn't have known what I was missing because I think that that's just the way it is. What the life that you choose is the life that's right for you. Um, but I was just saying this morning, like lockdown would have sucked for me without these two. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty fabulous. Yeah. They are. We are. <laughs> <laughs> well, because Amanda, it's the, cause that almost goes back to, and it's a question cause I want to go back to the girls cause I'm going to steal the last question for myself. Emma, over to you, because Amanda, I want you to like expand on this one. Emma? So when you, when you look back at your adult life, what experiences do you think have shaped you the most, both as a professional woman and as a mother of two brilliant and successful daughters <laughs> like us? So I think, um, I, I definitely think that going through basic training and recruit term at RMC were foundational experiences in my adult life. 
really understanding that I could do hard things. I think packing up with my husband and moving halfway across the country without a guaranteed job <laughs> was another, um, you know, that, that was, you know, a leap, a leap of faith in us, right? It, it wasn't necessarily just a leap of faith in myself. Um, but it was a leap in faith that, you know, that Tom, you know, that Tom wasn't going to run off somewhere else, first of all, um, you know, but that, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd wait around and, and support me while I tried to find, you know, something meaningful for myself. And I think, you know, having that foundation of, you know, a supportive partner has really been, um, I would say one of, one of the most important things, um, that I've had. Then as I, you know, as I look at, at the girls and, uh, you know, being able to support them through, you know, we'll say middle and high school. Um, because I, I think it's sort of where, where Tom and I, um, tagged out was probably around grade, grade six or seven, um, where, you know, he, he was, he was doing the, the day-to-day support, you know, in the, the earlier years. And, and now, you know, it's a bit more meet with the schools, like the school work and things. And uh, I think I think it's been good. And I think the girls make me want to be a better person. I think being a mother makes me a better leader because I have to, you know, I have to look at people's perspectives differently. Uh, and it's something that I didn't when I was 22 and leaving the military, part of the reason I wanted to leave was because I didn't think I had enough experience to be a good leader. I was in a leadership position and I was doing a good job, but felt like I needed more life experience to be a good leader. And um, ironically, it was like five years later where I was like, I'm ready to lead again. <laughs> Uh, and it took another, you know, another 10 years before I really got that opportunity to lead large groups of people. And, uh, and I, I, I really have loved it, but I've really recognized that um, while I had some of that, you know, from the early days, a lot of what I do, you know, it, it moves from the home to the work environment and back and forth. Some things I learn at work and I bring home and some things I learn at home and I bring them to work. And I don't think people give themselves enough credit for, you know, the skills that they develop in motherhood. Well, and I agree with you, you know, very similar to your point that you'd raised about what you learned from your mentorees in the EcoCar mentorship is that our, our children provide valuable lessons to us as parents and as leaders and I think it's, and you have the benefit of having two pretty awesome daughters at home that really do help to this experience. But I think if you had to sit there and pick a single characteristic, what do you think that other than patience and resilience, because um, they are teenagers, is what, what would you pick as your one characteristic that you think really has been the factor that you brought to the workplace with you? I think it's empathy. Yeah. I didn't always think that I was an empathetic person, but it's something I think I have learned through motherhood that I have brought to work and 
and is a big part of, of the type of leader that I am now. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting one because I noticed because of a lot of the age groups that you've been interviewing is it's, it's, our, ed, or it's our generation. And I, I'm curious at Military College Day, to the degree that they really are introducing empathy as a leadership quality, because I think it's it's key to what the people of today want. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be told. They want to be part of the decision-making process. And so this, this flows nicely into the last question, which you have asked all of us, and now it's your turn. What advice would you have for others going through similar transitions in their career and life that you have done? So I will say the advice that I always, um, I always give to people is to go for it. That, that really, at the end of the day, trust in yourself. You know, if, if this is something that you believe you want to do, just go for it. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about, you know, the, the nagging voice in the back of your head. If, if your gut is telling you that, or your heart is telling you that you want to do something, you should go for it. No, and that's, that's great advice. And now back to my, uh, my other two interviewers is I would really like to get your thoughts on your mother as a leader and your mother as the podcaster. Uh, for Christmas, they uh, they got you something very special. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to, uh, for our view, for our listeners, is I'd like Julia and Emma to talk to us about what you got your mother for Christmas as a gift. Over to you. So we got her this like picture frame that has a bunch of her milestones in it. Like at the front, at the top, we put like the logo and then we did like how many listeners she got, um, like what her most listened podcast was and just a bunch of milestones that she's hit along the way. Now, if I was a betting person, I'm going to say that you guys want to do this because you're incredibly proud of what your mom has decided to do and the difference that she is making for women everywhere. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, it's really cool just, like, to see, like, what she's doing and that, like, she's doing something that she really enjoys and that she really believes in. So it's really nice to, like, have that influence. Like, yeah. And I think that is a really good uh, summary, Amanda, uh, from all of your listeners. We are very proud of you for having decided to, to launch on this adventure And it's benefited all of us, not only those who are listening, but also those that you have interviewed. It has given us a chance to reflect on our own lives, provide us some inspiration, and perhaps give that little bit of extra courage that as you're standing at a fork in the road, that it lets you take the path that your heart wants you to take with that little bit of extra support from one another. And this is because of what you have decided to do for all of us. So... Thank you. And that concludes our special session with the now famous Amanda Calhouse. (laughs) Thank you, Carla. Thanks, girls. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at wmncanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. 
Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Kowenka.